You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Well, good morning. Yeah, it's been a good week. It's good to have any any kids back from camp. Anybody go to camp? You know, teenagers? Any? Oh, we got some teenagers in the house. This one to camp. Yeah, great to have you back from Hume Lake, and uh, great for you all to be here today. We are going to be in Second Peter. We're going to wrap up the book of Second Peter today. If you've been with us this year, we've preached entirely through the book of First Peter early in the year. Did a couple series, and then I was gone on sabbatical, and now we're going to finish up the book of Second Peter. But how cool is that? That in the course of this year, you've walked through two complete books of the Bible, and if you are newer with us, you can actually go back in our archives and watch those sermons, because we actually archive all that stuff, and you can watch it on demand online, and we would love for you to be able to do that. Uh, Let me just pray for a minute, because I don't know about you, but I saw like, it was nice to have the Delta Breeze last night, and the smoke kind of blew away, and then it came back in over the morning, but it just reminds me of those firefighters and people who are you know, their homes, their lives and stuff are in danger. And so let's take a moment and just lift them up. God, we just want to pray right now for people who are putting their lives on the front lines to uh, protect property and homes and forests. And God, I just pray that you would uh, protect them, put your care over them. Jesus, I pray for those who have lost much. Uh, We know that in times like this, God, you use loss to make us ask the big questions. And God, instead of it just being lost with no no benefit. God, I pray that out of loss, you would bring new life, new spiritual life, that people would come to their need and their knowledge of you, uh, even as they have lost stuff. God, I pray that they would bump into people who are believers, and that that conversation may lead to a conversation about the future and about the goodness of God, even in a world that has fallen and has tragedy just like this. God, we don't minimize it, but God, we ask that you would just put God appointments in people's lives, that they would encourage them, support them, help them in their time of need. We pray in Jesus' name, and together we said, amen. Well, I don't know about you, but uh, I've, I've got some hobbies in my life, and recently I've started to play golf. I've got a neighbor across the street, and he's like, Dave, let's play golf. Dave, let's play golf. And, and like, I haven't played for like a year, and I play maybe like once a year. So I finally, I said, all right, I'll go play golf with you, and we had a good time. And so he's like, well, let's do this every week, and the course that I go to lets pastors play for free. So uh, on, on a particular day. And so um, it's like their slow day. And so uh, I've been going over and I've been reaching out to my neighbor and I've been playing some golf with uh, my neighbor, his son and his daughter and, um, and out there at the golf course. And I got to tell you something uh, about golf. Um, there's nothing like playing golf to challenge a person's hope. <laughs> it just isn't. Like you're hopeful on one swing, one hole, and then the next one, it's just, it's just gone, right? It's just awful. And, and depending on your personality or your temperament or your competitiveness and your self-control, golf can bring out the worst in any person. Do you know what I'm talking about? It just does. You see it happen. And I, I don't know about you. you. You might think, well, Dave, you're probably a good golfer. Well, actually, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm like a goose laying eggs all over the course. I'm having to like drop a ball like all the time. I'm just like making donations to the lake you know, out of bounds, uh, people's backyard sometimes, uh, which is why right now I actually don't even hit with my driver. Your driver's like that big club, and it's the one that all the TV commercials on the Golf Channel tell you if you get the newest one, you'll actually hit straighter and longer and better, when reality the problem is the person, not the club. And so, so I don't even hit with my driver right now. Now the good news is I actually hit just about as far as the people I'm playing with, with my hybrid three, and it's the club that I use because I can hit it straight. So I don't know, I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty wise. Use the club that hits straight instead of the one that sprays it into the neighbor's, you know, yards next to the golf course. And so 
I can hit it really straight, but uh, I got to just tell you that both golf pros who uh, have been part of our church at the local course where I'm playing, um, they've offered to help me. They've offered like, hey, Dave, if you come in a little early, like we can, they're basically like, Dave, you need help. That's what they're saying. And so like we can help straighten some other things out, you know, there in your golf game. And so they've offered and I have yet to take them up on that. Uh, but, but here's kind of been the pattern. Like the pattern for me is uh, I don't play golf and then I'm hanging out with people who play golf. And, and if I get something straightened out, then I won't just be trying to play golf. I'll actually be playing golf. But that's the pattern. You go from like I don't to I'm near people who do. And eventually, well, maybe I'll, I'll actually start playing the game, not just wanting to play the game, but actually playing the game. And, and that's how we grow. If you're going to grow in something, no matter what your hobby is, if you're going to grow in your life, you're going to move from I don't do it to I'm starting to maybe try to do it and I'm hanging around some people who have it together more than me. And then eventually you're like, I'm doing it. That's how we grow. We move from like I don't to I do, but in between, there's this point where we hang around some other people. And, and in golf, one of the things about, that's interesting about that is that you wear shoes with soft spikes in them. They're like plastic, and, but they help you to stand firm. Because when you're swinging really hard, you need to not like let your feet slip out from under you and you know, spray the ball all over everywhere. You actually need those to stand firm. And when you make par or you make better like a birdie, you, you, may, you feel hope. You're like, yes, it's so great. Like, I can't believe I did that. You're like, yes. And you just think your score is going down, which is good in golf. But when you double or you triple bogey, or even worse, when one week you're playing and you're doing great, and then the next week you show up, nothing's changed, but you've lost your swing. There are a few things worse than that in a golfer's life. Literally at that moment, you can persecute yourself. You can persecute your golf equipment. You will persecute everybody else around you. You'll want to persecute the wildlife on the course. You'll want to curse the trees and all the creation around there. It's just the way it happens in golf. Golf can be rough. Pun intended. <laughs> but trying to compete at golf is nothing compared to trying to compete at life when you're actually being persecuted in your life. Golf's a game. But when you're trying to compete at life and you're actually persecuted for it, for your faith, you're persecuted in your life, you're facing an impossible situation, you're going through the biggest challenge you've ever faced, in those moments, that is actually way more difficult than just persecuting your equipment in golf. Here's why you need this sermon. Persecution can lead to a loss of hope. We just begin to despair, right? And if you embrace that despair in your life, you begin to wonder, is God ever going to show up at all? And when you embrace it, you decide, am I going to live for God or am I going to live for my shadow mission? Am I going to live for God or am I going to live for myself trying to meet my own temporary needs and just trying to survive? Which way am I going to go? Because if I lose hope, then I'm going to reach for despair. And maybe your shadow mission is fully expressing your anger. Maybe for you it's pride or it's deceit. You just become more and more deceitful. Maybe it's envy or lust or excess. It's just never enough. You're trying to accumulate more and more and more and build yourself up with more and more and more in a world where you can't keep what you accumulate anyway and the stuff is going to break down and you and I are going to age. It just doesn't work. And for some of you, it's you just give in to fear. You were trying to trust God, but you felt despair, and so now you're just giving in to fear, and it's magnifying in your life, and maybe even for others, it's just you check out, and you, you give in to laziness. You're not growing anymore. You're actually going backwards, and any one of these things, these shadow missions, 
can promise us survival, but they will inevitably get us off mission. We're no longer living for the kingdom of God. We're now living for self, and self doesn't satisfy. So Peter begins to deal in this book with a private battle. The doubts and the fears and the insecurities that lurk within a Christian and threaten to derail his or her life. And Peter's going to convince us that we have everything we need to live a godly life. In other words, you've got everything you need by God's divine power to make it. To make it till you die. To make it to live a godly life. Knowing you and I have liabilities, knowing the tension between our spirit and our flesh, you still, because of God's divine power, have everything you need to live a godly life. And so we're going to read together the theme verse of 2 Peter. It's 2 Peter 1, verse 3. It'll come up on the screen. Will you read this aloud with me? His divine power has given us everything we, for a godly life, through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. So again, it's God's divine power. It's not you. It's not what you think you bring to the table. It's not what you think, oh, I got this heritage or I got this, you know, faith from somebody else. It's, it's not how good I perform or what I do. It's because of God's divine power. When you put your faith and trust in Christ, you are given everything you need for a godly life. Now we have to participate with God's Holy Spirit that he puts inside of us, but we're given everything we need. So the nice thing is, the good news is, it's not up to you. It's not all up to you. You and I participate with God's Holy Spirit, but inside, because of God's divine power, we have everything we need. And so we've looked through this book, and through this book we found five different things that God has given us everything we need. And first of all, was everything we need to live a godly life. The second thing Peter dealt with was that we have everything we need to trust the reliability of God's promises in the Bible. Next, we have everything we need to identify a fake either a false teacher or a false teaching that we've attached to and begun to believe in our life, that it's fake, it's false, and the scriptures help correct that for us. We have everything we need, we talked about last week, to trust in God's timing, not our own timing, not our own timeline. And if you were at camp last week and you missed it, you'll want to go back and watch that on demand because it talks about how important it is for you and I to understand what it is at work when we're in God's waiting room. What is God doing and refining in us? How do we wait well when we're in God's waiting room? And today, Peter's going to argue with us and convince, I believe, you and me that we have everything we need to hope and to stand firm. So we have everything we need to live a godly life, but we also have everything we need to hope and actually stand firm as we're walking through life. So if you have your Bible, open with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to begin again with verse 10. We hit this verse last week, but I want to start there again as we wind up on the context. It says this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Does, by the way, does a thief announce when he's coming? Nope. So the day of the Lord is not going to come with a big announcement. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Verse 11, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. 
Can you picture that for a minute with the wildfires we have going on, with lava erupting in Hawaii, with all the fires that are happening all over California right now? We can picture that, that we know that half of the year in our Mediterranean climate, we just don't get rain. We just don't. But then the other half of the year, the rains start. And so when my kids were little, we had what we would call fire season. They thought it was an actual season. They thought it was, you know, like spring, summer, fire season, fall, and then winter. That's what they thought. We had to tell them a little bit later on, no, no, it's actually, it's actually just the time of year everything gets really dry and fires start up. But we can picture that. Can you imagine? The whole world, when it gets destroyed by fire, all that you see that's left that remains would be like fireplaces, right? The only things that, that stick up after a fire happens, maybe some metal work and and. Peter is using this analogy as the time that God's going to destroy everything. And the only thing that will remain is what God did in and through you. The stuff that makes it through the fire. The stuff that frankly leads you and I to heavenly reward. Not earthly reward, but heavenly reward. That's the stuff that's going to remain. And so he says, until that time, until that time comes, how should you and I live in the tension of life? When we're not yet at that time but we're still bound up in our flesh, but we have God's Holy Spirit in us. How should we live in that time? And so number one on your outline, if you're taking notes today, says this, in light of God's return, his judgment, the new creation of heaven and earth, we have every opportunity to be astonishingly excellent people, even under persecution. In fact, the phrase that he uses there, the NIV would translate it as kind of a question, like, well, what kind of people ought you and I to be? Peter, as he's writing in Greek, it's more of an exclamation. And what I want to mention about that is this. It's him saying, you have this amazing opportunity, even under persecution, to be astonishingly excellent people. He's not just saying, well, what kind of person should you be? And people would be like, I probably should be a good person. No, he's saying, you got this great opportunity to be better than just a good person, to be an astonishingly excellent person, even under persecution. Because he's saying, when you and I anticipate Christ's return, it should make an impact to our daily behavior. But that's where life gets a little confusing for us, doesn't it? Do you ever notice that life gets so daily that we lose sight of the eternal? Like, we know up here that God's going to come back. We know that Christ will return. We know that eventually all his enemies will be subdued and all things made right. But what happens is we know that up here, but our heart is consumed in the daily living. And sometimes when we're so daily, we lose sight of the eternal. And here, the people that Peter's writing to are being persecuted. And they're so aware of their persecution. They have fear. They have daily anxiety. They have things that they they might lose on a daily basis. And they're so concerned with what's right in front of them that Peter is saying, look ahead. Don't forget your hope. If you forget your hope, you turn toward despair. Don't forget the hope that you and I have. And when you have no hope, your behavior shows that you're just going to live for the now. You're just going to try to survive. However, Peter's saying, you've got everything to live for, and the future starts now. Don't lose sight of your hope. Your living and your promised hope in Christ give you everything you need to stand firm while you're being persecuted and to keep going. The promises in the Bible give you courage to keep trusting God. And it's great to give this idea, like someone's ever said to you, hey, hey, just, just hang in there. Just keep going. And if we're being honest, there's sometimes in our life we don't know what keep going means. We don't know what hang in there means because we're just trying to survive. 
Like, we don't understand what is that. Like, how do I get it? What does keep going actually look like? In this situation, it's beautiful because Peter gives us a picture of what keep going looks like. And so he gives us two things. He says, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. Now, those are definitions. The first one is this. He's talking about holy conduct. Your holy conduct is your external actions and behaviors. So as he dealt with in the book of 1 Peter, when you're being persecuted, you have this astonishingly excellent opportunity to respond to persecution unlike the world. In fact, you respond to it like Jesus that we pray for our enemies, we pray for those who persecute us, that instead of taking revenge, that instead we offer a blessing, we pray for them, we lift them up, and it's very countercultural. Because when you're being persecuted, the thing you want to do is take revenge, defend yourself, use your words in ways that are ungodly. And right here he's saying, listen, you have every opportunity to be astonishingly excellent. Some of you in this room, you feel like the authorities in your life persecute you. You might think it's your parents. You might think that it's your teachers. You might think it's your employer. And yet I want you to understand when you lose sight of your hope, then you're going to turn toward despair, and despair will lead you to turn toward just defending yourself. And so you're going to respond to the authorities in your life with revenge. You're going to respond to the authorities in your life with backtalk. You're going to respond with the authorities in your life with passive-aggressive behavior. And Peter's saying, let's not be that people. We have everything we need, even under persecution, even in our young years or our old years, to do everything that we need to live a godly life. We've got everything we need, and you've got this opportunity. Since we have this great hope in the future, you've got this opportunity to be astonishingly excellent people, even when you're persecuted. So first is your outward actions. When you go to a restaurant and uh, the server comes up to you, the waiter or the waitress, uh, what, what does the waiter do at the restaurant? What do they do? They wait on you. Yes, they wait on you. And uh, it doesn't mean they wait. It doesn't mean like they're sitting there just like looking at you. Unless they need your table, then they come by with a lot of water and other things and take all your plates away. But mostly, the waiter waits on you. That's what they're doing. Wait doesn't mean that they sit around waiting for you. It means that they serve. They bring you what you need. They make sure you're taken care of. They make sure your food is right. They, they're actually serving while they're waiting on you. When you're in God's waiting room, you have to ask the question, what are you waiting for? See, Peter here is saying, we're waiting for the future hope in Christ, but it's not arrived yet. And so you have to ask the question, what are you waiting for? Because some of you are waiting You've stopped waiting on the Lord. You've stopped serving his kingdom. And you really, in the waiting, have begun to wait on yourself. You've begun to serve yourself. You're trying to build heaven on earth. You're trying to get your own needs met. You have kind of quenched the voice of the Spirit. And you begin to follow what you want to do when you want to do it. Because life is relentless. And if you question that God's good or you question that God's going to return, you begin to think, well, maybe I need to become God and do as I please. My question to you this morning is, if you're being honest with yourself, what have you been waiting for? Who are you waiting on? Peter says, while we wait for Christ's return, we have this opportunity to serve his kingdom. 
It's a kingdom that's going to come. All things are going to be made right. It's going to be a beautiful time, but in this time right now, we have every opportunity not to wait for God to return like in our lawn chair, but to serve him, that we're going to wait on his kingdom. We're going to do what he wants to do. One of the greatest expressions of that is that even under persecution, we can live astonishingly excellent lives and be astonishingly excellent people. So the first thing he does is talk about our outer conduct our holy conduct. The second thing he talks about is he said, you and I should live godly lives. Well, what's, what are godly lives? Because we think godly lives are lives that have it all together on the outside. Like they look like they do the right things. But have you ever known anybody who looks like they do the right things, but they do it for the wrong motive? Oh, you've never known a politician then. No, the truth is there are plenty of people who do right things, but maybe it's driven by pride. Maybe it's driven by other people and how they want those people to perceive them. Maybe they're like the false teachers that Peter has talked about in the previous chapter who said on the outside they look like they're good, but the inside they're full of all these awful things, and eventually those things leak out and show themselves for what they are to everybody else. So you have everything you need to identify a fake or a false teaching. But at first, they're Conduct could look good on the outside, but then we begin to see what really is on the inside. So godly lives deals with the internal heart attitudes and the reverence for God. And, and listen to me carefully. If you're a young person in this room, there'll be times you disagree with your parents. But you know you're being godly when, out of reverence for God, you obey your parents. Your motivation might not be because you want to obey your parents, but it's you out of reverence for who God is, for how holy he is, for his sacrifice for you. You're saying, God, I don't get it. I don't understand why they think this way. God, I'm frustrated right now, but God, I'm going to choose to obey my parents out of reverence for you. God, you did uncomfortable things that felt like suffering for you. It's going to be godly. In other ways, same thing how we use our money, how we respond to our spouse. In all these ways, we're going to say, God, out of reverence for you, you see the motivation change? That in my inner attitude, my heart attitude, my reverence for God, it will change what I do. So he's saying, listen, yes, have holy conduct, but do it from the right motives. You should live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Now, it's an interesting phrase. Uh, the day of God he's talking there is not the day day of judgment that he talked about in previous chapters. That's a different day. I'll explain it in a minute. But I've heard at times preached that humans can speed up when Christ comes back. Like if we would just witness to the entire world, then he'll come back. Or if we would just live such godly lives, we'll speed its coming. And what Peter's talking about here is not speeding up God. We just talked about God's timeline is not our timeline, that God's coming back is a secret. We don't know when it is. And so we, we almost get this like weird theology that like God's just sitting around waiting like, hey, if you guys would just get your act together, I could come back. Like he's just tapping his foot, you know? Come on, get it together. If you would just witness to the entire world, then, then I'll come back. Because once everybody has a chance to hear, then I'll come. No, we're called the witness to the entire world. But we're not speeding up God's coming back. He will come when he's ready to come out. His timing is always perfect. If there's a delay on our point of view, it's a perfect timing from God's point of view. He'll come back. So the question is, can a Christian speed up Christ's reign by our behavior or good works? No, we can't. 
The believer doesn't dread the end of the world. In fact, we anticipate all things made right in Christ. That's what he's talking about. Remember, as you look ahead, as you look forward, what are you doing? You're anticipating this great hope that we have. And because we have such a great hope, we can live astonishingly excellent lives, even under persecution. 2 Peter 3.13 says this, But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. I want you to think about that phrase for a minute, righteousness dwells. Does only righteousness dwell on our earth? No, we have good and evil, right? But this is a place where only righteousness dwells. It's a beautiful thing. Think about how great that would be, a new heaven, a new earth, where the only thing dwelling there is righteousness. You're right, I'm right, they're right, everybody's right. It's, it's just awesome. How many times have you just been like, oh, Lord, please come back? You're watching the news, and you just say, Lord, come back. There's a word for that. I don't know if you know it. It's the word maranatha. Everyone say maranatha. Maranatha. It's not marinade. It's maranatha. And maranatha means, Lord, come. Like, Lord, come back. Like, we're hopeful. We're anticipating. God, we're looking forward to the time when you come back. It's maranatha. And so often, we, we look forward to that. The, the day of God that Peter refers to here is not the day of judgment that he referred to in previous chapters. Peter, in this one, is referring to the eternal state The forever state where all of God's enemies have been subdued forever. Listen to me. Everything is made right. Everything has been judged and it's done. Everything has been rewarded. It's a done deal at this moment. All the tension of life is gone. We are free from all that frustrates, all that hinders, everything that hurts. We are free from that. Righteousness dwells. It's true heavenly bliss, true security in God and his leadership forever. We don't have to worry about that, any of that stuff anymore. Righteousness dwells here. It's in us. It's through us. It's in all occupants of heaven, and it's comfortable with us. It's at home with us. It says that righteousness dwells in that place. It's just right. Don't you look forward to that? See, right now we live in that tension because we have spirit alive in us if you've come to Christ, but you also have flesh. And so we're going to live in that tension. And Peter's saying the beautiful thing about this life as tough as life is, is that the song is in the tension between those two entities. It's like a guitar string strung to the right note, and you and I have every opportunity in the tension of life to be astonishingly excellent people who respond out of reverence to God, even to things like persecution. And when we do, it plays the right note. It's a beautiful thing. But all too often, We feel the tension, and we feel that, oh, Lord, Maranatha, please come. And i got to tell you something. This is why you'll never feel completely at home in this world. If you try to make heaven on earth, that person you're trying to make heaven on earth is going to disappoint you. He or she can't be God with jeans or a skirt. If you're trying to make heaven on earth, that dream home of yours could get burned down someday. That dream home of yours, it may stay and you leave. It's not going to work. We're going to have the frustration of that. We can't take it with us. And we're always, please hear me, we're always 
going to feel at home in the kingdom of God because that's a place where everything we want that's right dwells. It's just at home with you. But you and I will never feel completely at home in this world. We will feel like strangers. We will feel like foreigners. We actually belong to the kingdom of God. We will actually not ever feel completely at home with a, with a political party because we are, belong to the kingdom of God. And it's a perfect one. And righteousness dwells there and it's trustworthy and secure and will last forever. How good is that? It's great. Peter goes on and says, So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul wrote you in the wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So he's saying, listen, Paul's saying the same thing. I'm saying the same thing. As you and I look forward to the kingdom of God, we have every opportunity to be excellent people in the time being that we have everything we need to stand firm, everything we need to keep having hope in a world that wants to steal hope from you all the time. Well, the good news is that right at the end of the book, it's almost like the drum roll happens. Peter's gonna give us the offense and the defense. He's gonna say, hey, I'm gonna tell you right here at the end of the book, let me sum it up. Let me help you understand how to be these excellent people. Let me help you understand all that I've talked to you in this book. And so he get, wants to give us the defense first. And he, the defense is this, be on your guard from the error of the lawless. Remember, he's just spent a whole chapter in chapter two talking about you have everything you need to identify a fake or a false teaching that you have everything you need, so be on your guard. Don't just, don't be ignorant. Don't be like full of bliss that God's gonna come back and let yourself get carried away with stuff that sounds good but isn't true. You have everything you need. He says this in 2 Peter three seventeen. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, where did he forewarn them? Chapter two. Be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. He's already said you have everything you need to identify a false teacher. Do you know that a recent study showed that four out of ten Christians here in their churches that God wants, almost God expects them to prosper financially. That God wants them to grow in prosperity. That God wants them to grow rich financially. Let me ask you, how would that sound to the, Peter, the people that Peter is writing to who they're not growing financially, they're losing their homes. They're losing their property. They're being, sometimes losing their health of their lives. Peter saw his own wife crucified in front of him. Peter went on to be crucified after writing this book. How does that effort from the Bible, where things are slightly twisted, how does that sound? How would that sound? How would it sound to people in a developing nation where they every day are working on survival? They're not working on getting ahead. They're working on getting through the day. How would that theology sound? Has God completely abandoned us? Has God forgotten us? I can't even imagine getting ahead financially. 40% of believers here in their churches that God wants them to prosper financially. I think we take the kingdom of God and we get off mission. I, let me tell you something. I, I think that sounds good to the American dream, 
but I don't think it's the kingdom of God dream. Now, God may bless you, and some people you might because of your skill set and the job that God has given you and the, and the resources, maybe even the heritage you've had, maybe you have resources, but it's such a beautiful thing to watch you leverage that for the kingdom of God. Everything else is going to burn or we leave it. Instead, we're to prosper and we're to grow in two areas that he describes for us. So the defense is be on your guard. The offense is to grow in these two areas. So here comes the offense. First, grow in the grace of Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace of Jesus Christ. Are you becoming more gracious and more caring for the lost like Jesus? You say, what's grace? Grace is undeserved favor. Are you showing undeserved favor to the lost people in the world that are frustrating you or that think differently than you? Are you growing in that? Are you showing the people that the Jewish people shunned because of their unholy conduct? Are you so offended by their unholy conduct that you have no grace in your heart from Jesus that just as Jesus said your conduct was unholy, I'm gonna die for you, that you would turn around and be able to extend grace to people who don't live like you, who are trapped, who don't have a hope, They don't know of Christ. They don't know of the future. They don't know. Are you growing in being gracious and caring for the lost like Jesus? Or are you like a lot of churches? There are a lot of people in a lot of churches who are like, we got it together. We got our theology in a good little box and we got our arms crossed and I don't have to go witness to anybody because God's just going to save who God's going to save. And I don't even think they know their theology. I'm pretty sure Peter knows his theology. And he says, grow. Grow in the grace of Jesus. See, people like that are more concerned with being correct than treating people right. We've said it time and time again in here that if your beliefs cause you to mistreat somebody, then something's wrong with your beliefs. Are you growing in the grace? Are you becoming more gracious to yourself? See, some of you in this room You're like, I'll be gracious to everybody else. I'll tell other people that there's good news in Jesus. But when it comes to your own conduct and your own behavior, you have no grace to show for yourself. You hammer yourself. You almost like crucify yourself. Are you in your inner person growing and receiving the grace, the goodness, the joy, the hope that is in a God who will someday rescue you and me from this body of death? Oh, there's relief in that. There's hope in that. Do you look forward to that day? And in the meantime, are you willing to allow the grace of Jesus Christ to apply to you and your deadly sins? Are you choosing to forgive your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? Are you growing like John the Baptist who said, less of me, Jesus, and more of you? Or as the years go by, are you saying, more of me and less of you, Jesus? Are you growing in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? As you wait for the return of the Lord, are you serving his kingdom? Are you waiting on his kingdom? Are you too consumed with building your own, building your family, your kingdom, your stuff, those kind of things? Let me ask you, which kingdom will survive the fire? There's only one. It's the kingdom of God. Which portfolio brings you heavenly reward that will never perish? It may not bring you reward in this life, but boy, in the next, absolutely. The portfolio of grace. Which portfolio should you grow? The portfolio of grace. We're to grow that one. 
We're to grow in that as a believer. Grow in the grace of Jesus. In other words, you are to prosper. You are to become rich. But you're supposed to become rich in grace. So the offense is number one, grow in the grace of Jesus. Number two, grow in firsthand knowledge of Jesus Christ. See, we feed on scripture. We read the Bible. We read the word. We commune with Christ. We talk to him in prayer. We begin to have a personal relationship with God. And in doing so, we increase our knowledge of him. He says, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's that picture of golf. Remember, I'm like, I don't golf. And then I hang around people who golf. And then guess what? Hey, given some practice, some effort, I'm now golfing. It's the same thing that happens with you. Some of you in this room, you're like, I, I don't know God. I'm actually at this church looking for some answers to some stuff. I want to find out, is God loving? Does God forgive my sin? How can I have that? But you don't know God. But there's others of you in this room, you would say, I, I, know, I know God. But the truth is you're hanging around people who know God, and you're hoping that that will rub off with you. Well, I have a faith, and I go to this church, and so I'm just kind of hoping it will rub off on me. But you need to grow in the knowledge of God, that you need to grow firsthand into the fact that you're like, I personally am knowing Jesus Christ. I have one-on-one -on -one time with me and Jesus and nobody else. It's not just a faith and a community. It's a personal relationship. And so you're going to grow. You're going to grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. How do you do that? You move from this, I don't know God, to I hang around people who know God, and now, guess what? After all those years, potentially, of hanging around people who know God, I, for the first time in my life, maybe am, I'm walking with Jesus myself. And I'm finding out that he's real and is true and his promises can be trusted, and I have everything I need to live a godly life. I'm knowing Jesus. So Peter wraps up by this. On the screen, you'll see these things that he gives us. You have everything you need to live a godly life. You have everything you need to trust the Bible. You go to the next, there you go. You have everything you need to identify a false teacher. You have everything you need to trust God's timing. And last, you have everything you need to hope and stand firm. He's given us huge reassurances in this book. And let me tell you, if I had one wish for you, it would be that you would read this Bible. And not only read it personally for yourself, but that you would actually do what it says. And I think when you do that and you participate with God's Holy Spirit, you move from not knowing God to being around people who know God to actually walking and knowing God. It will transform your life from the inside out. It will make all the difference in the world. So we're to remember that Christ is going to return. The way that we do that so often is through the Lord's Supper, through communion. We're going to take that in just a moment. But before we get there, with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, just thinking about your own life, I just want to ask, do you know Jesus? Do you know that he offers you eternal life, that he offers you the forgiveness of your sins, that all your sins can be washed away, that you can be made new and clean, you can be given a new heart from the inside out? But the way that you do that is you believe. God, I believe that what you did on the cross satisfied God's righteous wrath against my sin and it canceled it out. And Jesus, you're the only one who died on the cross for me like that. So I wanna know you. And the way that you get to know somebody is have a conversation. And so let's do that together. If that's you today, you wanna receive Jesus, you wanna receive the forgiveness of your sins, you pray a prayer like this after me to say, Jesus, today I give you me. I believe you died on the cross for my sin, that you were buried, that you rose to new life because you're God. 
I ask you to wash me as white as snow. Make me a new creation. Give me a new heart. I want to know you personally because today, Jesus, I give you me. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.